Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I sit down for a chat with Italian priest Father Franco Mella, who first came to Hong Kong in 1974. Born in 1948, the Catholic priest and social activist has dedicated his life to helping those in need both here and in mainland China. And he doesn't just help, he lives side by side. So he worked in the factories where fires could prove deadly. He lived on the streets with other street sleepers and then moved them to outside local district offices when he felt the government wasn't noticing. He lived for 10 years aboard a boat in the Yamadei Typhoon Shelter as he helped the mainland brides of the Hong Kong boat people gain the right to step on Hong Kong soil and not be limited to living on the boats. The 1999 film Ordinary Heroes, directed by Anne Hoy, is partly based on this story. In more recent times, he's helped with the right of abode issue and also continues to provide daily education alongside refugee students and teachers. Father Mella is a Pime priest, the Pontifical Institute for Foreign Missions. He first began telling me how he decided to become a priest as a boy. No, even before when I was eight, because my mother... Uh uh, one day I came back from the Sunday class and so and I said I want to be like that priest and so then she phoned all the relatives and said uh, Franco wants to become a priest so every time I went to see my auntie my uh, uncle my cousins ah, are you going to seminary yeah. so let's go so, so I went first to the to sing in the Milan choir until I was 14, and when I was 14, I went into the seminaries. But uh, then, when I was 18, I changed my mind, to, and then I shifted from the uh, local uh, seminary to the PIME, that was for missions, for missions as well. My parents were a little bit uh, so not so happy, because if I had stayed in Italy, I could, I could live with them, so it's... Uh, but then he, they said, if it's the will of the Lord. Okay. So I was very grateful to my seminary uh, friends in the seminar because they was the, they introduced me to the social life. And so it's, uh, they say, you are always going uh, to the church there. Let's go and see the district board, uh, the situation of these families and so on. Then I learned from them, and then I said, why I don't do the same in my district in uh, Milano? So, so I started. We even created an evening school uh, before I left, one year before I left, in the premises of the parish there. So, so. But it lasted one or two years, but anyway, so... You, those years were years of great um, activity, but also I, ideals, you know. So the 60s were very, very important for us all. So first, because of the Second Vatican Council for the Catholic from 62 to 65. And then even the Cultural Revolution that now is uh, so criticized. But uh, for um, the young people at the time was very, very important because uh, they started to, to be Maoists, uh, to, to say we have to leave our premises and go up to the mountains, go down to the villages, so go down and mingle with the people. So those ideals of those times made me also have this kind of life uh, later in Hong Kong. So 
And after the Cultural Revolution, there was the, the, May, the French May, 1968. And then in 1969, also the unions uh, uh, movement in Italy, to which also my father joined. He was a union member at the time. My mother also asked him to, to be more active. And so uh, my, my mother is a very strong character. My father was a little bit uh, quiet and so he's a... Uh, and from then, then uh, the early 70s uh, just saw an eruption of the movements in Italy. When I was talking to Father Mella, it was at a school where asylum seekers are both teachers and students and the subjects include English, guitar playing, French, Italian, Latin, among a number of others, also handicrafts. So he was also there with nuns who also teach. This school, in fact, was started in 2002, not for the refugees, but for the right of claimants, so children of Hong Kong citizens who were born in China and were given right of by the Court of Final Appeal on 29th of January 1999. And everybody in Hong Kong knows the issue, perhaps the youngest, they don't know, but... <laughs> Uh, is an issue that uh, is still going on, and there were a lot of up and downs of this uh, fight for right of both of these children. So after the court of final appeal, five judges gave them uh, right of vote. The two governments said that too many people would come to Hong Kong, and so at that time, Hong Kong government asked the standing committee of the People's Congress to reinterpret the basic law, was the first reinterpretation of the basic law. In September we started our school, uh, at the time we were relying on a thought of an Italian priest who is called Lorenzo Milani, who wrote a very famous book with his uh, children in the mountainside, was called Letter to a Teacher, and then he said that uh, the most important for people uh, who are poor, who are oppressed, is to have a, a good education. So, so at the time we we thought that because these children of Hong Kong citizens uh, who had come to Hong Kong, they couldn't work, they couldn't study. So why not to start a school by ourselves? So we started this school in September 2002. Which was called what? The name of the school is Right of the Board University because because Right of the Board is. Uh, university because we wanted to have universal knowledge so to offer universal knowledge and so but in 2004 because of something happened in the society we opened also the school to all the Hong Kong citizens so uh, especially uh, middle-aged women who couldn't study when they were young English or other languages they started to come until 2012 when the first refugee came he was a refugee from Pakistan, who belonged to a special sect of the Muslims, uh, uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim. And then he brought uh, many other refugees. And so uh, since then, uh, in fact, the school became more and more a refugee, a school uh, of the refugees and for the refugees. And now 80 of them are coming, so lessons every day from Monday to Sunday. Because the school of Don Milani also was a very special school who was opening the door for 12 hours a day for 365 days a year. So it's a and um, for other issues, uh, we, of course, we go on with the um, right of a board uh, feminist uh, 
movement uh, who had a breakthrough in 2010 when the, they were given a chance after 11, 12 years from the Court of Final Appeal verdict in 1999. In 2010 and 2011, they were given the chance to come for these children. So after so many years of uh, fighting and so but the problem was that was given only to the children who were under 14 when the, one of the parents came to Hong Kong. And so from uh, 2011 to now, 60,000 of these children have come to Hong Kong. Now we are going on fighting for the other 70,000 that were 14 or more than 14 when the parents uh, came to Hong Kong. So you came here in 1974? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you've been here now more than, what, 45 years? 46, yeah. Yes. Sorry, and so tell me, when you first came to Hong Kong, um, it's a long time to remember, but what were your first impressions of Hong Kong? Yeah, it was impression by because uh, at that time some people now are saying that the, the colonial government was a good government with a lot of uh, chances for people for democracy and freedom, but it is not true. Because <laughs> at that time, all was decided in uh, uh, not here but uh, in England or so. Is uh, so all the all the legislative council members were uh, appointed uh, not to say the governor so is uh, i myself i also was arrested in uh, 1979 because we were going for a demonstration we were arrested on the bus going to give a petition letter to the governor so people uh, were not counted as people because uh, for example we walk on the street on Nathan road or other places and you see three sleepers lying on the floor and people were just walking past them. So why these people are not considered as people? So it's, uh, and then step by step, uh, something uh, went on the move. I remember very well when a, an English uh, social worker came, Jenny Street, and he made research about street sleepers in Hong Kong in 1983. And at the end, uh, she invited us to establish a pressure groups group to be interested in the street sleepers. So we established, at the time there was a education action group, so action committee, so I thought we could call it street sleepers action committee. So street sleepers was the subject, not the object, not an action committee for the street sleepers, but the street sleepers should take action to free themselves and to get housing and so is That was the idea. So. And so we started to have some actions with them at the time in the 80s and uh, until now we are still going on, uh, though these committees have become a little bit uh, more a charitable organization than a, than a pressure group, but uh, the spirit is still there. You were also involved in, you know, in the, once you'd arrived here in 1974, you also used to, you worked in multiple factories and were involved in workers' rights. Mm. Yes, because at that time uh, was our uh, inspiration <laughs> to to follow the other priests uh, who had become worker priests uh, in uh, all over the world, in Italy as in other countries. I think they started in France in the 50s. And, and when I came in Hong Kong, uh, there were already two PME priests working in factory, uh, uh, Father Tay and Father Ticozzi. So and the idea of working in the factory was to 
to earn a salary while you were a priest or to be in amongst the workers or both? No, the most important was to be among the workers, so among the proletarian classes. <laughs> and second, also to be try to be independent uh, for uh, living expenses to, to get some salary. So, so you could just go on to say the mass uh, with uh, all the Christians, but without having to be given money or to be supported by the diocese or something like that. So it's, uh, that was the ideal all over the world. So, in, so what kind of factories did you work in? I worked in 14 factories, uh, so garment factories, electronic factories, uh, bag factories, uh, and I was dismissed three times, because, especially because we were very concerned about safety in the working place. And at that time, there were uh, fires in the factories, people would die, so we complained about that, and then we were dismissed and so anyway the three factories who dismissed me then they went bankrupt (laughs) (laughs) I was a bit of justice there then (laughs) uh, (laughs) pointing to the ceiling Uh, Um, but also with these factories were they factories as we'd understand them today or much smaller there were big factories and small factories I worked in both of them so is and what sort of areas first in uh, Sampohon first one then in Chimban, Kwai Chong, and then also to Taikok Choi, these three places, yes. And with it being predominantly Hong Kong Chinese, I'd have thought, in terms yeah, of the factory Chinese. workers, and, and I presume still quite a few, was it quite a few mainlanders still coming across to work? No, at the time, the majority are very Hong Kong people. Uh, so how did they feel about having an Italian priest among them? But uh, they, at the beginning, some of them were uh, curious to see why this uh, foreign person is coming. So, but then after they saw that we could speak Cantonese, we could, they thought uh, we were Chinese like them. So it's uh, it's just a matter of few days of uh, knowing each other. And so I remember when uh, Chairman Mao died, I was working in. Uh, Chansing main factory in uh, Sampohon, so we we heard on the radio. So, and then that night, uh, TVB had uh, three hours or four hours of documentary. But it was in the 9th of September, 1976. Uh, I remember the f- my first pay was 15 Hong Kong dollars per day, and after six months, they raised my salary by 50 cents. So 15 and 50. We also tried to talk with the workers and do something for the workers' benefit, and so is uh, to raise wages. And uh, but at that time, the problem was that to stay in the same factory, you didn't have any benefit. Uh, in, so people who were uh, who could get a little bit more, they would immediately change the factory, go to other places. So the mobility of the, the workers was big. And uh, at that time, also. The ideal was to live among the squatter people, but some some of them introduced us to so both people in Yamate. So uh, in 1979, I, I, I got, got a chance to go and live in the Yamate Typhoon Shelter. And then in 1980, another priest of us, for a Kumbo, also came and we stayed together for 10 years on the boat. All oh, right, so you lived for 10 years in the Yaomade Typhoon Shelter on a boat. And the other priest's name was? Franco Cumbo. But at that time, there were also some uh, sisters, you know, the Chardefoucault sisters. 
they were living on the boat, and they asked us to go to live in the boat because the first time they came in 1958, the first thing they do was to go to buy a, a boat and live among the boat people in Aberdeen. What time. order of sisters was this? The sisters of Charles de Foucault. Uh, is a saint that was made saint last month, and uh, is a French uh, saint that is a little sister of Charles de Foucault. So is. And uh, they are still here in Hong Kong, but now there are no boat people so left. So, it's, uh, so when you're saying boat people, you mean Danka people? Or? Yes, Danka people are local boat people, not the Vietnamese boat people. Yes. So, yes. Uh, so how do you mean there aren't any anymore? Because uh, now there are no people living on boats, perhaps only a few of them. But, uh, all uh, were resettled on land. When we started to live in Yamati, there were 70,000 people living on boats at the time. Incredible. Uh, and and what were the, so everybody did everything on boats? Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, they were just living there. They used to be fishermen who were going out to fish in high sea, but uh, then their... Um, their boats were uh, became uh, rotten, so they they couldn't go out again. So they put the their boats in the typhoon shelters, and they started to go working on land. The problem here was that many of them they couldn't get married in Hong Kong because they were they were fishermen uh, were going out in the high sea, and they they couldn't go to school. So no girls wanted to marry them. So they went to China and married peasants, uh, girls, and they brought them to Hong Kong, but they could only stay on the boat. They could not put their feet on them. And then uh, there was a boat rights issue in 1984, 85, 86. The boat brides issue, yeah. So the boat rights issue is that these women could stay on the boat because they had a permit to go in high sea by the Chinese government, but they couldn't put feet, their feet on land in Hong Kong. They could stay on the boat, but not go on land. So at the beginning, no problem, but when the children that was were a born... That was a stipulation from the Hong Kong government. Yeah. Yeah. And when the children had to go to the kindergarten, who took them to the kindergarten? Because the, man, the father was going to work in the construction sites. So the, the, the women were, uh, were risking to be arrested on, on men. And there was even a, a marriage on men between one of them, of these women, and, and the men. When the police arrived and asked them to go back to the boat during the ceremony. So on the 30th of September 1984, with 14 of these uh, husbands, uh, they had the, uh, the boat brides, uh, we went to petition the government while petitioning for housing. And the government didn't say anything, so we went there with the second group and the third group. Then in 1985, I had to go to Italy for our, at the time we were, we were going back every five years. After I left one week, the government, uh, in fact, asked these 14 women to go back to China. Fortunately, there was Father Kumbo on the boat, so they started a movement here with SOPO, the Society for Community Organization. And I went in, into England to Amnesty International, women's group, also to Rome, or the United Nations uh, there, and so on. And in 1986, on uh, February, we had a press conference after I came back from Italy. And on the in boats... In 1986, yeah. 86, uh, in February. We had a um, press conference, so the press came 
and they were asking, so what about these 14 uh, mothers that are now in China? So we said that we asked the government to let them come out before, before Easter. And then the, the press asked, uh, so if they don't come out, what will you do? We, didn't <laughs> we will go on hunger strike. So that night, the first news of TVB was this. So both people are going on hunger strike if there's a, because at the time was an issue of immigration and so on. And then we had to do that. So, in fact, I started the hunger strike in March. I don't know, don't remember well the dates, but... Uh, and after three and a half days, we were invited by the government to get into the uh, colonial secretariat, that it was called at the time. And the representative of the security department uh, came in. It was Regina Yip at the time. And she said that... Uh, if you stop the hunger strike, then we will give your mother the proper papers so they can come back in six months' time. Not only that, but we, the government is considering to give uh, a right of a boat to all the 2,000 boat brides that are in Hong Kong. So in batches, we'll go back to China, take the papers and come back to Hong Kong. So, so we, we were very happy that a good outcome. And they started to come back, all of them. So it's, uh, uh, all the ones who were in Hong Kong to go back and take... Uh, to so what, but while you were living, so 10 years on uh, a boat within the Typhoon Shelter, would you have been... So what sort of things that you would be involved with the, the community in all sorts of social welfare? Yeah, we or were you involved also in any yeah. kind of did they conduct any kind of festivals while you were there this they, sort of thing? usually festivals we had on Christmas on the boats with the, uh, the Santa Claus in the, <laughs> the sisters okay but it was important to be there because also we started the, the movement of the street sleepers because in Yamate we had a lot of street sleepers and so after we established the street sleeper, street sleeper section committee we we went uh, to demonstrate the <laughs> If you have to, to sleep here, why don't we go in front of the district board the office, the, the government at that time? And so we went to have demonstrations like that. Instead of staying in under the flag over, we went to sleep uh, in front of the government uh, offices and so on. And uh, we remember at the time that we had... Uh, 150 street sleepers at the Jordan Ferry. At the time, there was the Jordan Ferry. They were living uh, under eight big buildings that was called in Chinese Pabman Lao. And all of them were drug addicts. But we, with this group of 150 street sleepers, we called the press. We tried to ask for resettlement. And at the time, also, the Sitoa um, Professional Teachers Union was there in these eight buildings. And they, asked, they were asking us why these people are sleeping just down there, downstairs where we had the... And I explained to them, so perhaps they also uh, pressured the government. And eventually, all these 150 uh, street sleepers were given a place in temporary housing in Kaiyip Estate that is near Kowloon Bay. So. And some of them, after they got rehousing, they changed their lives. They got rid of drugs. They, they, some of them even married. One of them is uh, now is a child who is 20 years old, 
and he's inviting me to have dinner now. Uh, yes. So that means that uh, no people are completely cut out from, from the world, but uh, they should be supported at least to have housing. And so that's why even now we continue when we go to the Tonchao Street uh, Park, where there are the most of the street sleepers of Hong Kong are living. We insist that uh, they should be given rehousing, even though 90% of them are drug addicts also now. We are insisting that uh, they are not only given something to eat or clothes in winter season, or but also the chance of being rehoused. So, there so are you're no longer living on a boat? No, uh, on the boat. Uh, oh, from the boat, then we... We moved into, in 1989, we moved uh, with Father Kumbo to a temporary housing area, so it was squatter, government squatter, and stayed there for 10 years. In a government squatter? Yeah, at mm-hmm. that time it was called licensed areas, that when um, they were uh, just uh, closed uh, by the... Hong Kong government after 1997 because it's a heritage of colonial times. So it's, and so we were given housing, public housing. So I'm living in uh, public housing now in uh, Taiwan State. But at that time also because uh, the uh, licensed area was very small, we could not live in two. So Kumbo lived in the licensed area. I went one year to live on the street with the street sleepers at the time in 1989. And I used to work with the street sleepers to dismantle some wooden planks and sell the wood to somebody so we could get money to for living and so on. Dismantle the wooden planks from where? Yeah, some trucks take these wooden planks with it, but they don't need them, so they, they put on the roadside. We got them, especially in uh, uh, the fruit market, and that uh, we would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to get this plant by the containers uh, thrown away, and then we dismantle and use the the wood to uh, sold the wood that we would get. so you lived on the street, so in, yeah. in what sense? So you had all your stuff? Yeah, I had a nylon bed, uh, so I stayed on the street uh, from January 1989 to January 1990, so it's, uh, and uh, I remember once I was sleeping outside the uh, Yamati police station, and one uh, Englishman came and said, what are you doing here? Yeah, I'm sleeping. So it's, uh, hey, why do you sleep here? Uh, why not? So it's, uh, it's not a crime, you know. Because it's, uh, also, with the street sleepers, uh, we had, as I said, uh, this um, continue with the press conferences and so on. So. And then uh, with these uh, people in prison, especially women, mothers of ch- small children who came to Hong Kong, take some drugs. So it's. Uh, they were cheated, they became mules of drugs, so it's, um, and uh, the, the people who sent them said, uh, you go, okay, I give you 1,000 American dollars, you take this packet to Hong Kong. The most, if they arrest you, you stay in prison one or two months, and you come back. Then they had to stay in prison 10 or 20 years, so, so it's, uh, after they were caught. Fortunately, there is a program of Brother Bruce Aitken, uh, 
in, uh, on Metro Radio every Sunday evening uh, from half past eight to 11 o'clock for the prisoners and uh, for the Filipina domestic workers. And sometimes he asks us to go and also speak about the situation in the so prison. It's called Bruce, Bruce Aitken on Metro. Metro Radio, oh, yes, okay. yes, yes. In fact, he also was a prisoner because he was arrested because of money laundering in the United States, stayed in prison for nine months. And so he wrote a book about his life as a money launderer. My thanks to Father Franco Meller, a Hong Kong institution. Although this conversation was about Father Meller's work in Hong Kong, he's also spent a number of years in mainland China, working at a school with deaf and blind students, and he hopes to return to that work. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>